My Father, these words by your grace give expression so often to the feelings of our heart, the longings of our heart. They are reflections of your word, which itself gives us the words to speak back to you in prayer, the truths to rest on, the promises that are the foundation for our hope and the the solid ground on which we stand. And so we thank you for giving them to us and revealing to us the precious glory of yourself and your saving work that sinners are invited to come. Offenders are invited to come to receive mercy and forgiveness. And those who come to you are never disappointed. Those who trust in you are never turned away. Those who long for your grace are sure to find it because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. So we thank you. And we ask now as we open your word together that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that you would reveal to us Christ, and that you would reveal to us not only Christ in the truths, but you would reveal to us Christ in his glory, the glory felt within our hearts. And we ask you to do this to fulfill that ministry. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be back with everyone. Before I get started, I have a big note up here because uh, they know that I forget things. Um, this is from Debbie. So it says, uh, please announce Mother's Day cards and uh, in the book nook. So Mother's Day is coming up, and so uh, you want to be sure to celebrate your mother. Hopefully you do that every day, but there's a special day that Hallmark makes lots of money on and that we get to count to set aside to express a particular thanks uh, to our mom. So if, there are some cards if you'd like to, and also in, in the bookstore. Uh, there are several copies of the book Holiness. We are reading that in our book discussion. Today we have that, and the parsonage afterwards, it's every other week. For those of you who have been joining us know, we're on chapter 8, uh, Moses, an example of faith. It's been a wonderful read-through, and uh, it's been he's a great writer, and the, the truths that he expresses are uh, Really encouraging, and we have good discussions. So if you haven't joined us, grab the book. There's plenty of time. You can catch up or just jump in where we are. And uh, if you need a book, then they're in the uh, bookstore. And one last thing, I want to thank uh, Tim for his messages. I didn't get to hear last week, uh, unfortunately, but the other one uh, the week before. And just we appreciate the walk through Joseph and pointing us to Christ and God's faithfulness and the glory of God in the book of Genesis. So I thank you, Tim, for your ministry to us. With that being said, uh, why don't you open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, as we come back into this tremendous book, the final book of the canon, the last book revealed to us by God before he shut up the written word. He put a bookend to all that he had said before and gave us the book of Revelation as that final bookend that reveals to us the culmination of all of his plans uh, for creation. And I want to begin by just reminding us of this, that we are earthbound creatures, and as earthbound creatures, we are limited by creaturely abilities to perceive realities only as far as our eyes can see and our ears can hear, and we are able to perceive the things of this world. Uh, All of the senses of our physical body give us uh, access to the wonderful things that God has made, but not access to the things beyond, the things that we cannot see, and yet there are things we cannot see. 
And in fact, the things that we cannot see are, in reality, ultimate reality. They are the truest things. They are the ultimate things. They are the things behind everything else we can see with our actual eyes. In a real sense, those are the things that we are to live by in this world. Those truths revealed to us. You'll remember Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, and I'm just going to read this to you, familiar words, said when he's thinking of his ministry and when he's thinking of his life, when he's thinking of all that he suffers, but he's thinking of that in light of his hope, he says this in chapter 4, verse 17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then he says this in verse 18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They are the things that really matter. They are the ultimate things. They are the ultimate reality. And those are the things revealed to us in Scripture. And everything in Scripture and revealed to us there is affirmed to us ultimately in the concrete realities of God's work in this world. The things that He actually does. Ultimately, what He has actually done that puts the exclamation point of everything that He's ever said is what? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the coming of the Son of God as the prophets anticipated. It is His dying as a substitute for sinners for His people and rising from the dead, having furnished proof to all men that He is also the King to return to reclaim what is rightfully His. Now this is important for us to remember because in the chaos of our world and the seeming unbridled and unhindered rise of evil against all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is true, there is the reality that that's not ultimate. That one day all things will be made right and they will be made right by him who is actually good, who is actually true, who is actually holy, who is actually ruling all things for his glory. He has not abdicated his throne. He has not fallen asleep. He is not disinterested. He is in control, working out a sovereign plan for his glory and our good. And it's needful for that. If you were just to review your own heart and your own thoughts and your own attitudes and your own emotions and your own conversations over this last week, particularly as it seems every week is something new evil to lament over. Something new that's evil and deceptive in order to rise up within us a frustration or an anger or some fear or discouragement or whatever. And so if you think of your reaction to this world just over this last week between the last time that we met, uh, there may be some indication that we don't always look at the promises. We get too lost in the things that are right before our eyes. And that's not unique to us. That's why God has revealed to us the thing that he has. Sometimes we can go so far as almost to lose any sense of hope. Maybe even to grumble against God. And you say, how could a Christian or how could someone who knows God grumble against God? It's because we are weak in faith and we need constantly to be reminded of what the truth is. We see a classic example of that in Psalm 73. You'll remember these words by the... Psalmist, he said, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. He was envious of the arrogant and he saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
He saw that those who disobeyed God, who had no concern for the glory of God, seemed to flourish. They seemed to prosper. They seemed to go through with ease through life. He says there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. There's, there's no trouble for them as there is with other men. They are not plagued like mankind. They walk around with pride. They walk around in violence. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They, uh, riot. they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from as on high. They speak as the... As though they were the ones who were truly the rulers of men. They speak against heaven. Their tongue parades through all of the earth. They are in fact openly, arrogantly, obnoxiously and completely given over to their rebellion against God. And the rejection of everything that is true and of his rightful authority. And sometimes that can overwhelm the righteous. That can overwhelm those who have a hope for better things. That can overwhelm those who are actually the ones who receive the pain and the the reality of that kind of oppression and that kind of arrogance. And it grieves their soul. And he said, the psalmist did, In vain then I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. But then he says, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And here's the change. Until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. It was a matter of perspective. It was a matter of looking at the world in, in only the way that his eyes could see and only the, the things that his senses here could perceive. But he realized that's not the way that things actually are. That's not ultimate reality. These things are temporary. And he said he came into the sanctuary of God, which is to say then I came back into the presence of God, back into the knowledge of God, back into the way things that God has said they actually are and to what God is doing to the true potentate over all of creation. And he said this, I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away with sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He says, when I didn't realize that, my heart was embittered, I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. But then he gives these wonderful words. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He saw in the nearness of God his good, and he saw in those who rejected the reality of God and his purposes for creation and his purposes in his covenant, he saw them ultimately as perishing. And that was the perspective that led to the rejoicing again of faith, to the confidence of his hope, to the certainty that all things will be made right. And by knowing in that certainty that that is how then he is ordered to order his life to that end, to trust the God who has made all things, who will make all things right, and to live consistent with those truths. And that's exactly what God does in Scripture. 
He invites us, even here in the book of Revelation, in an even greater way into this reality. The reality of him who is on his throne. The reality of him who has good purposes for his people. Who has a plan for this world. Who has already determined the end of all things. And that's what he has given us in his word. In short, he gives us a sight of his sovereign glory. A peek into the heavens to see him there. To trust Him and to worship Him. And so this morning, that's what we're going to begin to consider in Revelation chapter 4 as we come to the next section of this great revelation of God that is meant to do the same thing for us as it did for the writer of Psalm 73 to give us a glimpse into heaven, to reorient our perspective of the world, to give us a certainty and a surety about the where things are headed and to give us hope that will guide us today. It is to remind us essentially of who God is. And we begin here this morning by considering an invitation then to behold this sovereign glory. Now before we read chapter 4, let me just briefly then set the context here. We know in chapter 1 that God has introduced this revelation to the Apostle John. That he has given him a sight of his exalted glory, one that overwhelmed the apostles so that he fell down before his feet, it says, as a dead man. And then this exalted and this glorious one, this exalted and this glorious Christ who is and who was and who is to come with his Father and with the Spirit. He revealed to him a message that was to be delivered to the seven churches. And so he gave a message to the seven churches that were alive at that time, but also in that message representative of all of the things that he would want to communicate to his church throughout the ages, both in warning and in promise. And in each one of those, he ends his message to those churches with a word of promise, as well as a word of warning and a word of judgment to come if they do not repent. And after his final message, in this sort of descending condition of these churches, by the time we get to Laodicea, as was noted, but by way of reminder, there was nothing good by way of commendation that he said to the church. The only good thing he said was, or that he said that could be seen as an expression of his goodness to them, was the invitation to repent and to enter into fellowship with him. And then we move out of that scene of this first vision of Christ to the churches now into this next scene and this next vision in chapters 4 and 5. And it is in these chapters then that he is setting the foundation for everything that's to follow in the rest of the book of Revelation. He's setting the foundation of who God is and who is the one who will work out all things according to his plan. One said these chapters constitute the pivot of the structure which holds the book together. And that is a true statement. Chapter 4 is going to bring us into the throne room of God to see God seated on his throne. Chapter 4 or 5 is going to take us to focus on the Redeemer who has all rights over creation, a world and a kingdom that he has purchased and how he will begin to take that kingdom back. Reveals to us the worship that surrounds the throne of God and that will surround him for all eternity. So let's begin by reading all of chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 11. And then we'll consider this invitation to behold sovereign glory. Read with me Revelation chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. 
Now after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face of that, like that of a man, and the fourth creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever... The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so then we have the entrance to those hidden places to see the glory of God. And in seeing the glory of God to gain confidence in all that he's going to, all he has promised to us and to his people. Go back up to verse 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 this morning and then finish the rest of the chapter next week. And note here then an invitation to behold sovereign glory. The very first words, after these things. The very last words of verse 1, after these things. What does he mean by after these things? And it's really important to understand this because this is in many ways going to set the way that we understand the rest of the book of Revelation and the rest of the, the prophecy that is to take place and the glories that are to be revealed. Because how we understand this is going to inform us on whether these are things that we can expect to take place. Whether these are things that have already taken place. Whether these are things that specifically we are to look for. Or whether these are things or general principles that guide in a large sense, in a broad sense, the cycles of life in a fallen world that come in the rise and the fall of nations over which God stands sovereign. So he says, after these things, what does he mean then by after these things? Is there a sense of chronology here? Is this a, a sense of the just merely progress in the vision without relation to time? What does he mean? Well, let me suggest to you here that there are several reasons to understand these terms taken together as both the beginning of a new vision 
and a revelation of the things that are yet to come in time. Yet to come in time. First of all, and we'll go through this briefly, notice the first use of after these things is clearly here a reference, a reference to everything that he said about the churches, everything that has been revealed up to this point, everything that he said in the messages to the seven churches that has now ended. And he's saying after these things, after these things that have already been revealed, there are new things now that I want you to know and that I'm going to show you. And in fact, we won't go through all of them. He uses that little phrase after these things in the same way at several times. This is a new vision. This is a second vision. This is given to John by the risen Christ. The same one who revealed the message to the churches is now revealing his message to the churches for his purposes for the end of all things. It's a message that was revealed to him again in the spirit. If you notice in verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit just as he was when he was initially called. In chapter 1, verse 10, that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is to mean that he is taken up in the power of the Spirit to be shown things that otherwise would be unknown. Spiritual things. Things that are related to the presence of God and in the throne room of God. There is, in fact, probably... An interval of time that has taken place here. Maybe enough time for him to have written down the vision that he had already received. And now ready to take up his pen again. To write the next things that will be shown to him. So after these things is to say that after the things that he's revealed. Here are the new things that are to be revealed. The second use however has a different sense. He says the end of verse 1. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So the first after these things is in relation to his message to the churches. The second after these things are events that will take place and are foretold by God after what has been revealed already in his message to the seven churches. This phrase then really begins or alerts to the fact that what is to come in the vision is also what is to come in God's purposes for this world. It is what's to come after these things. There's just a third observation on this I would mention. Some of these things we'll cover more down the road. And that is this. There is a curious absence of the mention of the church for the remainder of the prophetic outlook that God reveals after these things. There is John who is a part of the church who is then given significant messages to the church is. And then there's this unfolding of this evil that is to rise in the world and God's judgment on it that has an absolute sense of removal of those churches it seems there's no message to the suffering churches in first peter there's no encouragement to the suffering church under the rise of the kingdom of antichrist there's no mention of the church as there was in the first or the last two chapters it could be an indication then at least for some that the church is no longer present on the earth here after these things that the church has been removed from the judgment that is to become upon the world. And the church is now in the presence of God. 
The church that he revealed to, those saved in the church, the redeemed in the church, those who were truly united to him in chapters 2 and 3 are now with him. There is now an unfolding of God's judgment on the world. Certainly many will be saved. We'll see scenes in which there are many multitudes of the redeemed, even saints, those who are chosen before the foundation of the world, separated unto Christ, who will be called out of this evil system. They will be saved from ultimate death and dwelled by a spirit on the earth. However, the church as the corporate worshiping body is nowhere to be seen from this point on. And so it is a message that seems to take place in a way that marks this off as the end of the age, the final dealing of God with men, a moving on of his divine program for this age in which the church is not a part. So it is possible here, it is possible, and we'll again consider these things down the road, that this is events after these things, after the church has been removed from the earth, in what many hold to be the rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture. The now he is revealing these things after the church is removed of the judgment that is to come at the end of this age. Now let's look then at what he says to them. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. He says, behold, there was a door open in heaven. It's a dramatic picture of what stands as an invitation to enter into the heavenly realm. The door is the entrance into that realm, into a realm that would otherwise be inaccessible. If it was a closed door, it would be a realm that would be still unknown to us, but it is an open door. And again, this is the fact, reminds us of the reality that... Truth and what actually is consist of both the seen and the unseen. And the unseen world is here what he's giving us access to to help us understand the world that we can see. It's a unique sight of those things that are hidden with God. Now I'm not going to go through all of these verses, but I just want to remind you there are many times throughout Scripture in which God gives us these glimpses in which God gives a glimpse and particularly to strengthen his people. You can write these down and read them if you want. I'm just going to mention them for time's sake. If you remember, Elisha was with his servant feeling the threat of the army of the Arameans and the servant was worried and the servant was concerned that they were going to suffer, that there was no way that they could answer this threat. And Elisha encourages him. He encourages him and says that, no, God is on our side. God has provided for us protection. And he says this in verse chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Alas, my master, the servant said, what shall we do? And so he, being Elisha, answered and said, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around He said, there's more than what your physical eyes can see. There are realities you can't see that assure us of the victory, that assure us that we are not forgotten by God, that assure us that his purposes are being worked out. He gave him a vision of what was known only to God. 
before he gave him the sight to be encouraged. There was God before Moses, Aaron, and the elders at Sinai as they were invited up to the mountain. And the vision of God was there with a pavement coming from his feet like sapphire. It was a vision of his glory to remind them that they are in fellowship with and in covenant with the God who is. There was Stephen when he was being stoned after he had declared faithfully the gospel to this apostate nation. And as they were stoning him, the leaders filled with rage. You'll remember the incident in chapter 7 of Acts. And he says this. It's recorded for us. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But having up being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God. The glory of God that had always been there. But now he gets a sight. He's given special eyes to see it. And what did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that was the last thing recorded before he died and went to be with the Christ he saw standing at the right hand of God. We have famously Paul after giving the list of all the things that he was suffered for the sake of the gospel records In the defense of his apostleship, a special vision that was given to him. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. I know how such such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. God showed him that because of all the things that he was going to suffer, even still for the sake of the gospel. He gave him a sight into things that otherwise he wouldn't be able to see. But Paul was told not to write these things down, to keep them concealed. These are things that we're not allowed to hear about. It's not time yet. But that's not what happens in the case of John. John is commanded to write these things down, not to conceal it, but to reveal it to us and for his church that we might be instructed and encouraged. And so here he is. He says, there is a door opened, opened to these heavenly realities. And he is moved by the Spirit through this door into heaven. Into these heavenly glories. Where is this heaven? What does he mean by that? Well, Paul mentioned the third heaven. Some of you are familiar with. What does that mean? Are there three heavens? Are there multiple heavens? And he was just in one of them? Of course not. Scripture speaks of heaven as the sky. Heavens as the universe. And then heaven is that unique place where the manifestation of God's presence is known. And that is what Paul saw. Sometimes we speak of someone who is in Christ going to heaven. which By which we mean this, that they are with God. That they are with God and all the holy angels and all of the the Christians who have died before. And in a real sense then, the full reality of heaven will not be known, however, until the eternal state and the eternal dwelling with God. When we are in a new heavens and a new earth. What heaven is he talking about here? Heaven is the realm here. And the main idea of heaven is where God's existence is Uniquely manifest before, again, all of the holy angels and all of the redeemed. It's a real place. It exists in a real realm, but it's a dimension that is inaccessible to us while we're here on earth. 
It's the place where the resurrected Christ went to be at the right hand of the Father. It's the place where Christ is right now, interceding for us as we just sang. It is the place from where he sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 3, 20. And it is the place from where he reveals the sovereign glory of God and his purposes for the end of the age. And so he's saying, John, you have access into this place. You have a door that is open to you. And the Spirit who showed him this door moves him through the doors into this other realm to see things that he otherwise would not know and could not see. And so he's here in heaven. And what does he hear when he goes through the door? He says, I heard the first voice and it sounded like a trumpet speaking with me. Who is this first voice? This first voice, the voice speaking to him is almost certainly the risen Christ. The same voice that was speaking to him with the sound like a trumpet as we already looked at the beginning of his first vision. It is a voice strong. It is a voice powerful. It is a voice overwhelming. It is loud. It's clear. It's arresting. A trumpet is, a, is an instrument that's meant to get the attention to be heard from long distances. It calls people to war. It's the trumpets that the angels are going to take when they're announcing the judgments that are to come in the rest of Revelation. Here it is the sound of the voice of the trumpet to arrest his attention and to overwhelm him with the glory of the one who is speaking to him. Would have been a frightful sound in many ways. Some see here, I'll just make a note of it, as the trumpet that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, as the trumpet that calls the church to Christ in the, resur- in the rapture. I don't think that you have to go there. I don't see it that way, but some do. In either case, Christ is here speaking to him with the voice of a trumpet. And he's speaking to him, notice, in a very personal way. He said he heard the voice speaking with me. That is very personal. This is the risen Christ who is exalted, who is separated in glory, and yet this is the amazing thing. He's near his people. He's not, he's not off in a distant way and separate, but he's speaking with him. He's speaking with him personally. That was the very same idea that he promises to all to come to him, he said in, to the church at Laodicea. I will grant them to sit down with me on the Father's throne. I will come and invite them to dine with me, he says. He will dine with them. Here he speaks with John. You can imagine how overwhelming to be in this presence. And I just don't want to miss the fact here that this is the, this is the kindness of God in all of his revelation. Listen to this, and I'm just going to mention it. He told his disciples before he left, he says, I no longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. Listen, for all things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is the kindness of God. This is his friendship with the church, as it were. This is his gentleness with us to say, here, I'm telling you these things before they come about. And so he calls to John, this risen Christ, and he says, come up here. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Come up here. Come to be with me. Come to receive the revelation that I have for you. And what are the things that must take place, and what is he to see? Again, he sees the sovereign glory of God who's going to work out his purposes. And this is the key and the essential thing to grasp. That the reason for the book of Revelation, the reason for all of prophecy itself, is to gain a glimpse into reality. To see things the way that they actually are. 
If we don't have these truths then and the truths of Scripture guiding the way that we view everything in the world, then we're not living according to reality. We're walking in blindness. We're walking in foolishness. But here he says you can walk in wisdom if you listen. And so here he gives a glimpse. One said this, a door in heaven is open to enable the prophet to enter its portals and see what transpires in heaven that he may understand what takes place on earth. In other words, you don't understand and we won't understand the rise and the fall of nations. We won't understand the news reports and what that means. We won't understand the issues that we're facing. We won't understand any of that if we don't understand this. If we don't understand this, we'll be in a place of despair and confusion and hopelessness. But God's people should not live this way. And so he's commanded here to enter into this door, to come up to the risen Christ And to see things that are necessary for us to see. And I just want to make again a footnote here. This is written down for us in a book in scripture. Here, this is where John experienced it. He felt the things that were there were to feel. He saw the things that God had for him to see. But he wrote it down in a book. So that we could enter into that door with him. God's word to us is a word from the unseen realm to the seen realm. It's it's from the place that we would otherwise have no access to that's revealed to us here. That's amazing. And here we have access then into that same vision. We have access into the same vision. And like John, we need the same supernatural spirit, the work of the spirit to show us these things. If you read word, the word, scripture, without the spirit then you can gain information, you can even believe in that information, you can even talk about that information, but it is the Spirit who gives us the sense of the glory of it, who works faith through that word, who produces trust in our hearts. And so the Spirit who showed John these things, the Spirit enabled him to write them down, is the Spirit who has revealed them to us and is the Spirit that we need to understand them and have eyes to see. And so he says, come up here, And see what is on the other side of the door. And he says, I'm going to show you what must take place after these things. In other words, this is what will necessarily take place. These aren't what will possibly take place. This is what God is doing and what God will do. This is essentially laying out details of what Paul said to the Ephesians that God is summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. Him who is working all things after the counsel of his will. Here is that will spelled out for us. Here is that counsel revealed to us. The sights, the sounds, the realities being put on display are done so, so that we would think about them, so that we would meditate on them. And so he says he's brought up in the spirit in the spirit into the throne room of God and it's a scene of great glory sovereign authority and worship more precisely it's God's sovereign glory that leads to worship the worship that we'll look at that includes all of the elders the angels those who are in heaven and on earth what is the first thing though when God gives him a vision when God gives us a vision of the things in heaven What is the very first thing he wants us to see? What is the thing that he wants us to know? So if he's he's writing to us in his church, what is the very first thing he wants to capture his eyes? What is the very first thing he wants to arrest his attention? 
at what he says in verse 2. Behold, a throne, a throne was standing in heaven. A throne was standing in heaven. The first thing he wants to impress upon him is that there is a throne inhabited by God. And that throne is a picture of his sovereign authority. The term throne, only in chapter 4 alone, 37 times in the book of Revelation, 14 times in the book of, in chapter 4 alone, this term appears, a throne, where you're entering into the throne room of God. That's what he wants us to see. Who sits on a throne? Only a king or a ruler sits on a throne. Other thrones are mentioned of these 24 elders, but that is a derived authority. They have that authority from God. God is the only one with an independent authority. And he's the center of this vision, the singular glory that the eye is to be focused on. It is this singular throne which every other throne and all of the other activity is surrounding. But this throne stands at the very center of the imagery and of the picture. And God says, I want you to know there is a throne in heaven. And God sits on it. This is always God's reminder to us to us, through his word. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. His sovereignty rules over all. Let me suggest to you that this truth, that very truth, that's revealed to us for our encouragement that God is on his throne is a hated reality by fallen men. It's a hated reality It absolutely, to understand the absolute sovereignty of God, is hated by those who have not bowed the knee to him. It's hated by fallen angels. That his glory is the only proper end of all things stands in direct opposition to the desire and end of all fallen creatures. This is meant to confront that reality. It's meant to encourage his people who have bowed the knee and to confront those who have not. To remind them that you are not on the throne. Listen to the way Spurgeon spoke about this. I just hear it. I didn't have it up here. He says, There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all of creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. Men will take God as long as he doesn't threaten their ultimate purposes and autonomy. But that's not the way things are. And again, we need to be reminded of this because of the temporary opposition of the kingdom of his Satan and his subjects against the kingdom of God. It appears at time as though Satan has the upper hand, just like the psalmist felt. It appears at times that God's throne, how could it be established when we see how much power evil seems to have in this world? And There is a throne set up in opposition to God. Ultimately, it takes shape in the rise of the Antichrist. And the dragon will give him his power and his throne with great authority. Great authority over men. Great authority on the earth. Great authority to oppose all that is good and to oppose God's people. 
Great authority to put all who resist that authority to death by beheading them. Great authority to make their lives miserable. Why is it important to see that the throne is at the very first, at the center of God's revelation of himself here to John? It is to realize that the throne that you're experiencing in this world is not the throne that actually has authority, full authority. It's a temporary throne. Don't be dismayed. As we think about our world then, this tells us something else. As we think about our culture, as we think about the nations, it's important to remember this, that it is not a battle primarily between political parties. It's not a battle primarily about LGBTQ. It's not a battle that many of you are facing primarily about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the way that that's going to bring oppression and persecution. Those are realities. Those are realities of the beast and his purposes. He wants his throne to reign. It can feel like we are under this great oppression. And in one sense, God's people are. It's not ultimately then a battle between those who seek wealth at the hurt of others or power. It's much deeper than that. And that's why we need to see this. It's a spiritual battle for one thing. The glory of God. That's what it's a battle for. The glory of God in the souls of men. It's a battle for ultimate authority, ultimate glory, and ultimate reality. If there's one thing that when truly understood what it means, that fallen man hates to give glory to, it's God. And yet God says he will accomplish and achieve his glory. Let me just remind you of one passage here. And this is just an introduction to take us into the throne room next week. But when we think of what is the response of men when this unique kind of judgments of God or unique judgments of God come. He says in chapter 16, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And listen, they did not repent as to give him glory. Even in the face of great suffering. Even in the face of great judgment of God. Even in the face of the appeals and the opportunity to repent, to be escaped that judgment and to be freed into the forgiveness that is in Christ. The one thing that the fallen heart will not do outside of divine and sovereign grace and sovereign enablement is give glory to God. And that is the one thing, however, that God demands and will bring about from all of his creatures and from all of creation. And so it's an issue about glory. It's an issue about glory. And again, this stands in stark contrast then to the rebellion and to the blindness of man. However, God's throne is unchallenged and his purposes are unthreatened by rebellious man. The gaze then turns to the one sitting on the throne. He says, behold, a throne was standing and one sitting on the throne. And that's really the issue. And that's where we'll look next week. But I want to just remind us of this in this opening scene here. In these first introduction into these heavenly realities. Is it's designed to establish one thing. Listen, in the hearts of his people. And in the, thing, in the thinking of his people. And that is that God has all authority. He is ultimate reality. He is working out his purposes. He is in sovereign control over his people, over the nations, and that he will bring about his purposes. It means he will bring about all of his promises. It means that God has made a promise that he will bring justice to the earth and he will hold all rebels in his kingdom accountable to divine justice and to truth. 
He has promised to bring everything that he's given to his people in Christ. Everlasting salvation, rest, joy, and glory. To give it to them. To bring it about. He has promised to us at the very end of the letter, Behold, I am making all things new. It is the reality that he sits on the throne that assures us and all of God's people that what he promises he will bring about. This is what he wants us to know. What did he see? If you could look into heaven, what you're going to see, the first thing to catch your eyes, the first thing you're going to gaze on, the things that's going to hold your attention throughout everything else is this, a throne, a throne and him who sits on it. One said this, and we'll come into the table with this. The eye of the flesh cannot see how it is possible for God's promises to come true. But the eye of faith looks to the Lord omnipotent. And that is the point. The question then is this as we come in. One is first, whose side are you on? Whose throne do you bow to? Whose authority does your heart yield to? Whose glory do you seek? And whose promise do you hope? Where have you placed your hope? Whose promise do you rely on? Political leaders? Your own? Somebody that denies scripture? Or what God has revealed to us in his word and in Christ? And there's only one sure hope. And actually that's the hope that we celebrate as we come to the table. This is a reminder, it's a sign by our covenant Lord that he has accomplished for us a kingdom. He has accomplished for us redemption. And this is a reminder to us that we are his and he is coming. And so we come as his people who have bowed the knee to the king, Lord Jesus. And we remember in these elements his glory and his redemption. So let me pray and the men will come forward. Father, thank you for giving us this sight into the realities that are otherwise unseen to us. Help us to, and grant us the gift of faith, to see them, to lay hold of them, shape and renew our minds and our affections according to the truth, to a true worldview. And any true worldview has you on your throne, working out your purposes, sustaining your people, Fulfilling your word. May that be the experience of us who have trusted you. The reality that we grow in. Especially as we face what unknown troubles yet lie in front of us. That we would know and that there is one in control. That our, our salvation will come about. That our hope is certain and sure. Remind us of those things as we take the table and the elements. And for those who are outside of Christ. We pray that you would bring them to that place of ownership of their sin, hope in the one who's paid for it, and trust in the coming king. In his name we pray, amen.